Well, today we come to sermon number 34 in our suggested topic series. As I told you, there are a lot. There's still more to come. But uh, this is the last one in this particular division of Christian living. That's a little bit deceptive, though, because there were so many in this section that I could put into the section of Christian living that uh, the next section is called Christian living in the home. <laughs> so we'll still be doing Christian living, but it'll be Christian living in the home. But this is the last one in the section that I'm calling uh, Christian living. The person who suggested today's topic stated their request like this. The local church is your family. I think, and then they put in parentheses, I think it could be helpful to emphasize the importance and responsibility we have to the local church. How we should be helpful to one another. Even those who are single or married without children can help in being involved with another's children, according to our vows. So this is certainly an important subject for us to consider. We could do a whole sermon series on this. I started looking at different texts that I could use for this passage, and it was uh, very soon I had you know, a dozen or something. And you even think about all the one and other passages that we have in Scripture as members of the same local church, we have a mutual responsibility to care for one another, each of us according to our callings and gifts. To simplify, I've come up with a title for this of On Helping Your Brothers Thrive. The Bible presents us all as brothers because we have God as our Father and we're all heirs. Brothers were the ones that were the heirs that, of their father. And we're constantly urged to have brotherly love among ourselves. In our day, it's important to understand that the, bro the word brother, when we use it in this way, is a figurative term. We're not literally brothers, but we're brothers as those who are born again as all sons of God. It speaks of us as those who are born in the family of God by His Spirit. Both men and women, as well as children, are all referred to in Scripture as brothers. Women are not left out here any more than men are left out when the church is called the Bride of Christ, or when the city of God's people are all called the Daughters of Jerusalem. We are, men are all daughters in that sense. They're all part of the Bride of Christ. Likewise, women are all brothers when it comes to being sons of God and receiving inheritance from Him with Christ the Son. So both men and women are the bride of Christ. Both men and women are sons of God. Both men and women are brothers in Christ. So I wanted to clarify that as we go into this because our society is so, um, I guess, super sensitive about these things. You notice, though, that I always use the term, you know, I, sometimes I say brothers and sisters, but very often I'll just say brothers as the Bible does. As we get into it, the, the subject that's before us today about on helping your brothers to strive, let's think about the basis for our brotherly responsibilities. It's simply put like this. We have a gracious Savior who cares for us and who has gone all out in what He has done in His care for us. And He calls us to extend His care to one another. That's really the basis of our call to brotherly care and love in the church. He went to the cross and gave us His Spirit. And now He intercedes for us so that we can thrive spiritually. When He saw His people doing things like selling things in the temple, it was supposed to be a house of prayer and greedily abusing His people and distracting them from their worship, He came with vengeance, like Nehemiah came with vengeance, and to deal with the situation and to cast them out. On the other hand, when He saw someone caring for His people and being gentle toward them and helping them, then He came to encourage and support them. Think about how inappropriate it would be to have a Savior like our Lord Jesus who has brought us into His Father's house and done so much to make that happen. And then for us who have been brought into His house to be indifferent to one another and whether our brother is thriving or not. John stresses in his first epistle that if we don't love our brothers whom we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? 
how, do we, how can we say that we know Christ? 1 John 2, 9 and 10, he says, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. In the next chapter, John goes on to illustrate with Cain. It was hard to, it was hard to choose a particular text for a subject like this, as I already mentioned. But I finally settled on a passage that emphasizes how much our Savior wants us to help our brother, not to be like Cain. How much He wants us to help our brother thrive. The passage is Matthew 18, 1-19. And of course, the kind of thriving that is emphasized here in this passage is that they would thrive in their relationship with God. So that they not only go on with the Lord, but so that they grow and bear fruit. As a garden does not thrive when it simply exists, when it simply has a lot of plants, it thrives when it bears fruit. And we want to see each other bearing fruit. And we want to do what we can to bring forth that fruit as God enables We're to go out of our way to see that our fellow members thrive in the church and especially that the children who, being much more impressionable and more easily influenced one way or another, that they thrive in the church. And this passage emphasizes that, just what the person that asks about this topic was looking for. So listen now as I read our text. It's Matthew 18, 1 through 19, and it's God's holy word. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offense. Offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven." For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in, the, in heaven that one of these little ones should perish." Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. There we'll end the reading of God's holy and infallible word. It's rather remarkable to see how Jesus develops his discourse here, just kind of how he tracks where he goes with it. He, He is prompted by the question of his disciples, about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he answers their question that a child is. And then, he argue, and then he urges them 
to see that they do not cause any of these little children to stumble, to cease to thrive in his kingdom. And then he urges them also to see that they themselves do not stumble. It's so important to go on with God. And then he instructs them to pursue earnestly anyone who does stumble, anyone who ceases to thrive in the Lord, to go and, and, and minister to that person. Let's take a look at the instruction that's given here. It's very, very helpful. First of all, Jesus declares that the greatest ones in his kingdom are the little children. What a surprise this must have been to his disciples. Here they had been arguing about which of them would be the greatest, and what they had in mind, what they were thinking about, was the one that would have the honor, you know, how they, they would sit at a high place, they would give him a certain seat that they would sit at, and he would have all the accolades, and he would have the respect at the feasts and such things. He would have the most authority that people, he could tell other people, you know, what to do and, and all this kind of stuff. Jesus was thinking on an entirely different track. Jesus was thinking about the one who would receive the greatest blessing. Because his kingdom is about blessing his people. That's what he's all about. And uh, it's not, his kingdom is not about gaining honor. It's about receiving the blessing of God that sanctifies us. In his mind, the kingdom was more about saving sinners so that they could thrive and bear fruit for God than it was about attaining some kind of a high position. So what does Jesus identify about children that makes them the greatest ones in the kingdom of God? Essentially, humility. Look at what he says, verse 3 and 4. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, in what way? You see, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What way do you become like them? Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The humble one is the one who is perfectly comfortable to rely on others for help. That's the way children are. Little children do not concern themselves with obtaining food and clothing. Now, they want them. They concern themselves with that. They can be actually overly wrought about that. They, they can be demanding, but they don't concern themselves with how they're going to get it. They're dependent on other people. You bring, I can't get it myself. You, you get me this. <laughs> they're fine with leaving it to their parents or guardians to figure out how to get them to what, what they want. They want to make sure that it's there for them. Uh, they're even that way with learning to talk. Children don't come and say, you know, I think the words that you're using here, I, th I think you should use these words instead. Let's come up with a new language. I don't really like this. They, they completely submit. They, they all learn to talk like the parents. Don't they? they all learn the same language. They don't learn a different language. They say, you know, I'm going to be independent here. I want to learn a different language than my parents, and I'm not going to talk my own way. <laughs> they, don't, they don't sit down and make up names for everything. They, I mean, they be playing around or whatever, but not in a serious way. The, the, this humility is exactly what is needed when it comes to thriving in life. The person who supposes that he can figure out how to thrive in life without looking to God for help is a fool. He's not just a fool, but he's an arrogant fool. That's what we, the human race, fell into when we ate the forbidden fruit. The arrogant delusion that we could find out how to get on well in life without God. A person like that, Jesus says, can't enter my kingdom, much less thrive in my kingdom. The person who thrives the most is the one who says, have mercy on me, a sinner. The one who faces up to the fact that he is a sinner who cannot save himself, cannot fix himself, the one who receives from the Lord the truth that life is meant to be lived for the glory of God and in enjoyment of Him rather than for His own desires, that, that we are to receive instruction about how to live for God from God rather than desire, designing how we should live for God ourselves, that we must receive grace and strength from God's Spirit in order to do anything that without God we can do nothing, that we must obtain pardon for our sins through Jesus Christ who died on the cross because there's nothing that we can do to secure our own pardon. 
the one who makes the most progress is the one who is the most humble, who looks to God to provide what is needed and who gladly receives it from his hand. It is important to understand that Jesus is not merely using the child as an illustration. Namely, that in the same way that children look to their parents for provision, and not, not trying to get it themselves, they look to their parents for it, their parents are guardians, so the great ones in the kingdom look to God. Okay, That's true, isn't it? The same way children look to their parents, yeah, they look to, we should look to God. But Jesus is pointing out that children who are discipled faithfully in His kingdom are the ones who are the most open to receiving His truth. So He's not just talking about their relationship with their parents. He's talking about their relationship with God and with Him. That little children are a model because they're receptive to God. A child born in a faithful Christian home who hears the truth and who sees it lived out day by day will be quite accepting that it is all true much more than a crusty, cynical old codger will be who is too proud to listen to the truth. He is too filled with his own ways. Even though the truth should be immediately clear to anyone who is exposed to it, the problem is not an intellectual one. It is a problem of arrogance and pride and one that is unteachable. There is an unwillingness to be taught by God that sinners resist the truth that would otherwise be quite clear to them. That's the problem. They will take a certain amount of religion, but never enough to break their pride down to the core where they have to cast themselves on the mercy of God unless God does a powerful work of regeneration. Now, this is true of little children, too. But the difference is that they are not hardened to the extent that older persons are. And if God is pleased to call them as infants, they gladly grow up embracing the truth, looking to God for salvation from sin as they grow to understand what sin is and what salvation is. They thrive in God's kingdom because they are humble. Jesus informs us that he is extremely watchful of the way that we treat the little ones who are members of his kingdom. Why is he extremely watchful? This speaks of how he looks upon the way we treat children, as well as those who are like little children. That is, adults who humble themselves and believe in him when he is presented to them. So this includes all of our fellow members of the church. All of our brethren, okay, we all profess that we're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, that we're humble, that we're depending on Him. If we receive people like that, little children, He counts it as receiving Him. Right here, He says in verse 5, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Jesus kindly associates Himself with us that whatever anyone does to us, He associates himself with this little child, those who are like little children, little children, uh, whether whether good or bad, people that do anything to us, whether good or bad, he counts it as done to him. Maybe you will remember uh, Saul, later later Paul, when he was persecuting the church. What did Jesus say when he was persecuting the church? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He counted it as being done directly to him. Likewise, in Matthew 25, he speaks about visiting those he calls what the least of my brethren who are in prison or of giving he talks about giving them food when they're hungry those who are need clothes when they're naked and he says inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these my brethren you have done it to me so he's very very concerned about how we're treating one another What an encouragement this is for us to see to our care of one another. We have a duty to help each other thrive in the Lord. We're to do all that we can, and whatever we do to encourage each other, Jesus will regard as done for him. It is for him because he's so associated with his people that he loves. It's done for him because he so loves his people. Now, the opposite is also true. 
And he tells that right here. If we harm his little ones, if we harm our brothers, then it stirs his wrath and indignation. In verse 6, he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea because of his love for his people. Little children are the most humble, but they are also the most impressionable. That is a wonderful thing when they're being taught the truth. But it is a terrible thing when they're being taught lies. Whether by false doctrine or by false living, it is very easy to lead a child astray just as it is easy to lead them to truth. What is worse than to tell a child how they need to humble themselves and look to Jesus for forgiveness if they never see you doing that? Like many who testify that they grew up in a home where they never once heard their father say, I have sinned, will you forgive me? Not once. Or what about a parent who goes off in an affair? We could go on. These are the things that can make a child stumble. It can get them out of the way with God. Okay, so they're no longer thriving. But they're not, now they're not thriving. To stumble or to be offended is to cease to thrive in the Lord because we have a wrong impression about Him. We've gone a wrong way with Him. A child shouldn't stumble, but they easily do because they're tender and impressionable. Teach them the truth, they're likely to believe it. Teach them lies, they're likely to believe those. They are, in fact, sinners and have a natural antipathy to the truth, so it's easy for them to stumble, just like it is for all of us. But as stated before, when God calls them at a young age, they are not usually nearly as hardened as those who are called later in life. Here you can see again how zealous our Lord is for His people to thrive and how He associates that zeal with how He regards us and whether we are helping each other to thrive. Anyone who interferes with that thriving that He is so jealous for, anyone who disrupts that and causes one of his little ones who believe in him to stumble, would be better off with a millstone in the bottom of the sea. It matters how we treat each other. He loves us. He wants us to love each other. He is not here among us today because he is in heaven interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. But we are here to minister to one another in his name. The gospel doesn't get preached unless we preached it preach it. People don't get actively ministered to by us, by someone going and talking to them unless we do that. After making this clear, our Lord takes a bit of a turn. Having warned us not to cause others to stumble, he expresses concern for us that we not be caused to stumble. It's very important. If you're going to be able to minister to others and you're not thriving, you're not going to be able to help anyone. And so it's interesting that he, I said it's very interesting how it unfolds here, isn't it? He, he's given us this zeal, zealous thing about caring for these little ones, that they would thrive. And he says, but, but you, you watch out that you don't stumble. Make sure that you thrive. So let, let's see what he says. He tells us that offenses are sure to come. Verse 7, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. Things that make people stumble. We live in a fallen world, and there is much of the world right in the church, okay? Offenses are things that make God's people stumble. They can come from outside. They can come from inside the church. There are different degrees of stumbling as well. You know, you can have something that pulls you down away from God a bit, dries you up for a, 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 an hour or a day, and then you, that you recover and get back on track. Or you can have a lie that leads to you renouncing God. You won't ultimately do that if you're a true believer. You, you won't ultimately renounce God. But you can go pretty far down, like Peter did when he, when, when he denied Christ. What caused him to stumble? His master was being arrested by those who professed to be God's people. 
he was being abused and mistreated. And Peter was brought before people who were saying, ridiculing and saying, you're not one of his disciples, are you? You know, that kind of thing. And, and Peter stumbled at that. He denied Christ. Or you could be like Jonah, who was offended at his duty. There was no one that made him stumble. He was offended at the duty that God gave him to go and preach to the Ninevites. Or you can be like David, who committed adultery and tried to cover it up with murder. You can go down very far. And if you're not a believer, you can be drawn right out completely to walk no more with him. Jesus tells us here to expect offenses to come from the world. They will come. Be, be ready for them. This world is hostile to God, and it wants to lure you away from him with, with candy to, to lure you. Or it wants to drive you away with persecutions and trials for your faith. Satan and his agents are hard at work. The world is at work. And our own flesh is at work in, with us. Like Jonah, he was offended, his own flesh. But often offenses come from other people. And that's what Jesus is especially talking about in this passage. Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Yeah, it made you stumble. That's a problem for you. And it's a big problem for the one that made you stumble as well. It reminds us of what he said about the millstone again. You know, but he, he, he's leading to another point here, though, to how we respond when those offenses come. That's what he's addressing now. How do we respond when an offense comes to us that would threaten to destroy our uh, prosperity in the Lord? He tells all of us to see that we do not stumble. We do not, in fact, stumble. Now, remember this. You can't blame someone else. We do not, in fact, stumble unless our own sinful heart responds to the offense that was brought. Okay, someone attacks Christianity and we stumble. Our own heart responded wrongly to that offense. Yeah, the offense, you could say, caused us to stumble, but we're the cause of our own stumbling as well. Jesus had everything thrown at him to make him stumble, but he never stumbled. Not once. He was entirely without sin and he had more offenses than anyone else. He remained steadfast. Why? Because he loved God's law. I think it's very providential that we sang Psalm 19 today in the selections that people chose. Psalm 119 also talks about God's law. And in 165 it says, Great peace have those who love your law and nothing causes them to stumble. Jesus loved God's law. He wanted nothing else than to be filled with the ways of God. And so he never stumbled. He never, never, never was offended by whatever people did. He still loved God's law. So here Jesus tells us to not let our own sinful desires cause us to stumble. He speaks of our sinful desires as our hands that take hold of sinful things, that hang on to sinful things, and our feet that run after sinful things. We gravitate, we go toward them. And eyes that desire sinful things. We look upon them and we desire them and we're enticed. Look at verse 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Do you see how zealous Jesus is about stumbling and that we can, would continue to thrive? He says it's better to pull the eye out than to do that. He loves us. He is the one who went all the way to the cross to save us so that we could thrive in the Lord. And he says, don't be indifferent about thriving. Don't be careless about it. Don't let stuff pull you this way and pull you that way and, and, and destroy your relationship that, that he has purchased with his own blood. He pleads with you to go on thriving in the Lord. So the question then, are you thriving in the Lord? You're no good to anyone if you're not thriving in the Lord. You're not going to be able to minister to anyone. Have you let your sinful hands and feet and eyes cause you to stumble to follow the world that wants to pull you away from God don't let that happen and if it has 
Don't remain cold and indifferent. You stumbled. Get, get back to the Lord. Get back. Call on his name. Plead for mercy. Return to him at once. He will gladly receive you. He never turns away. People come and say, I've sinned. Lord, help me. Receive me. He is passionate about us thriving. And, and so if we've turned away and we come back, he's not going to turn us away. It is one of those very lies of the world that he is not good and merciful and that he will not receive you. That, that's one of the lies of the world that keeps you from coming back. One of the things that makes you stumble. Don't let that lie make you stumble. Don't let Satan make you stumble. You've gone too far now and you can't come back. It's not true. Don't hold on to such nonsense with your sinful hand. Cut that hand off. It's not worthy. It's not true. Don't go, don't go walking in it. Don't turn your eyes to it. Cut off those feet. Cut off those hands. Pluck out those eyes. Don't let anything keep you from heaven, from God. Don't let anything keep you from Jesus, your Savior. Okay, so now Jesus turns back again to our main theme for today, the care that we have for others. So maintain your own walk. You can't be zealous about other people thriving if you're not zealous about thriving yourself. And that's taken care of. And brothers, you are to do all that you can to see that the other members of the congregation, and especially the children and the lowly ones, thrive. Make it a priority to go out to the one who goes astray. The best thing is to do this as soon as you see the first signs of them being offended, of them not thriving. You see that hardening. You see them not interested in the Lord. You see them not rejoicing in Him. You see them not hungering for His Word. Go and reach out, even if it's just to tell them how good the Lord is and what He's done for you. Remember the man that Jesus had to cast out all the demons? He said, go and tell everyone the great things the Lord has done for you. But better still, if you see them striving, ask them how they're doing. How are you really getting on with the Lord? Ask them if they are thriving in their relationship with Him. And ask them what they're learning from His Word. Ask them what they're praying for. If you can pray with them. If you can pray for them. To ignore them is to despise them. Look at verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Why does Jesus call it despising them? You don't despise anyone, do you? No, actually, think about it. If, if you see someone in the church, child or otherwise, who is not thriving in their walk with God, you see someone that's in danger of hellfire. Like Jesus said. Okay? Your foot causes you to stumble with your eyes, your hands. They're, they're in danger of hellfire. And you say, I'm not going to bother. You leave them? You leave them to go to destruction? Now I want to be careful about overly sensitive consciences here. Sometimes people won't let you talk to them. You try and they won't let you talk to them. They won't let you come to them. They won't open up their heart. They won't let you in. You do not need to riddle yourself with guilt. Beat yourself up. Rather, burden yourself for ardent prayer for those people. It's a very, very painful thing that sometimes the session has to endure when we have people in the congregation that will go away and they won't. They won't meet with us. They won't talk to us. They won't let us come and talk to them. And we ask them and we appeal and we wait and we wait and we pray. And it's loathsome to have to discipline someone when you don't even know what's going on, when they won't talk to you, when they won't tell you. you try, try, and go to them as you're able. But if you just don't care about these things, that's where the problem is. You don't care how people are doing. That's where you need to repent if you're indifferent about whether people are thriving. Now, of course, we do come short in that way, don't we? Very short. I mean, Jesus seeking sinners is the standard. Who can live up to that standard? You know, we, 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 we don't come close to living up to his standard. 
Look, look at what he says. He presents it right here in verse 11 through 14. He says, For the Son of Man, talking about himself, has come to save that which was lost. That's why he came. He says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that was is straying? And if he should find it, surely I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That is such a beautiful picture of how he made our rescue from sin such a priority. He wants us to make it a priority like he does. You know, we are to love each other the way he has loved us. Now, you see this shepherd, you know, going out, going through the weather and the dangers and all the places to find that sheep that went astray. We come short. But remember that he is at work in you. And as you are looking to him that you might thrive, you will become more and more like him in caring for others. You will begin to see what a dreadful thing it is for anyone to perish in their sin as you draw nearer to the Lord yourself. And how good it is for anyone to thrive in the Lord. And you will want that for them more than anything else. More and more, it will become a priority. You grow into this. You know, Nathan, my son, I saw him on Friday, and he told me that his pastor had advised him when beginning his studies this fall not to be afraid of being labeled as a weirdo uh, for being the guy that goes to other people and says, you need to pray, and bringing that kind of thing up to people. And uh, Nathan's been very encouraged lately with doing that, with ministering to people and reaching out to them. It's very, very good to hear how he's been doing but uh, his pastor said, you know, don't, don't be embarrassed to be the guy that people say, you know, he's coming over here again. He said, no, don't, 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 don't let that stop you. I thought it was very good advice and in keeping with what Jesus says. Because we can be like that. Oh, people might, they might not like it. You know. Jesus also gives us practical instructions about how to go about dealing with those who go astray. It's in keeping with our focus to go into, I mean, it's not in keeping with our focus to go into details about this. But what stands out here is the importance of restoring your brother as he goes into this. You are to care enough to make the effort that Jesus lays out here to restore him so that he will go on with the Lord, so that he will go on flourishing in the Lord. You don't, to use the language that Jesus used, despise him by ignoring him when he goes astray. Efforts to restore him need to be taken. And this is very important. When we're talking about Matthew 18 restoration, the efforts taken need to be taken with a warm heart, a loving heart. We need to take the shepherd going out in the night to find his sheep and put it together with the mechanics of the process of church discipline. That's why these things are put together. It's not just a legal code that you go and you do this and then you do this and then you do this. It's the shepherd going to the lost sheep to restore him so that he won't be destroyed. It's that passion and that love that is to be animating what we do in Matthew 18 when we go to someone to restore them. The steps are clear. First, you go to him alone. Verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. What's the temptation to go gossiping to other people because you got hurt and making a bigger mess? Your goal is to win your brother. Go in a gracious way. Now, let me say when I say about not going and gossiping, It's okay to go and talk to church leaders and get counsel and advice about how you should deal with a problem. But don't, or talk to your parents if you're a child, but don't just go gossiping about people just because you want other people to know about what they did to you or whatever your reason is. Go in a gracious way, though, expressing true care and concern to your brother, ready to listen, ready to understand, yet with firmness to unrelentingly call him back to the Lord. Tell him that you want to see him thrive in his walk with God. 
We want to see him feed on God's word again. To be receiving nourishment from God. To have a prayer life. To be calling on God. To be eager to worship God. To have influence on other people for God. To bring glory to him in the way that this individual lives. To, to love God's people and to serve them. You want that person to find rest and assurance in the mercy of God, in the forgiveness of God, in the helping grace of God, in the justification that we have in Him, to be filled with the Holy Spirit for obedience. And it says, if He hears you, you have gained your brother. You kept your brother from going to ruin and destruction. You restored him and brought him back. He doesn't hear, though. If he doesn't hear, don't give up. Move on to the second step. And you see, the, these things, this is, this is an outline of how we, how we operate. We, we bring other people, and help, help me, help me. So-and-so's not listening. They're, help me. Come, come and join me in reaching out to this person. But if he will not hear, verse 16, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now select these people with two criteria. One is select people who themselves are flourishing in the Lord. Okay, Because if if they're not flourishing in the Lord, they don't really care whether somebody else is. It's the wrong person to take. Somebody that's in the same boat. You, You take someone who is thriving. That's the first criteria. And then out of those who are thriving, the second criteria is you choose someone that you think this individual will will be more disposed to respect, to respond to, to listen to, whatever. You take someone that is maybe that knows them well or that you know that they know loves them or or whatever. You, you, You select, because what are you trying to do? You're trying to win them. You're not just trying to create some legal situation where you can say, look at what they did, but you're trying to bring them back so that they can thrive in the Lord. That's the goal. The people you take are also there to hear the matter and to tell you what they think about it. They might say, you know what, you're, you're overwrought here. <laughs> like this, this isn't really, this isn't such a wrong thing that this individual is doing. Like you need to lighten up. And so be ready for that. They're there to bear witness. Did this guy really do something that needs to be dealt with? And of course, most of the time it would be. Verse 17, if this fails to reclaim the individual, you're still not to give up. Move on to the next step. You and the people who went with you. Now, what do you do? The group, several of you are trying to help this person, still not getting anywhere. Verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. The word church is the word ecclesia in the original or assembly. The word itself can refer either to the worldwide church, church over the whole world, the regional church, like a presbytery, the church at Ephesus or the church at Halifax, that kind of thing, the local congregation, like Covenant Reformed Presbyterian Church, a local church, or the elders of the local congregation, the ecclesia, the assembly of the elders that we call the session. It refers uh, here it refers to the local congregation in that uh, Jesus is presenting... What, what Jesus is presenting here is nothing new. It refers to the elders of the local congregation. It, it was well established from the Old Testament that you would take people before the elders of what? What was their assembly often called? The synagogue. So you would take the people that had gone astray before the elders... The fact that there are two or three elders mentioned later in the passage, which was often the case in the congregations of the New Testament. They weren't big, huge churches. They were churches that met in homes, courtyards of maybe people with larger homes, but it was still just a courtyard. Um, Two or three shows that it was the elders of the local congregation. It wasn't the whole congregation. It is up to them, the elders then, to hear the matter, to hear the individual, and if they concur that this person has sinned, to show him his sin. That's what they're trying to do. To show him how he's gone wrong, how it is wrong, how harmful it is, 
to plead with him to repent, to turn to the Lord, to come back to thriving in the Lord again, to warn him of the consequences of not doing so, of the peril that he's in. Verse 17 continues with instructions of what to do if he still refuses. But if he refuses even to hear the church, if he refuses to hear the ecclesia of the elders, the assembly of the elders, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. What does that mean? It means he's not a member of the church. Okay? Heathens are people that believe other things besides the truth. And the tax collectors were people that were in rebellion against God. This means that you put him out of the membership of the church, making it clear to him that you cannot regard him as a believer as long as he remains in rebellion against Christ. The church is declaring in this way that the individual's life is such that he can no longer be identified as a Christian, as a person who is going to heaven. Jesus emphasizes that when the elders make this dreadful pronouncement, they are speaking in behalf of heaven. He and his Father and his Spirit have appointed the elders to speak for them on earth. It doesn't mean that the elders are infallible in all of their decisions. Jesus' words are, verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Literally, the grammar is literally will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Literally, again, will have been loosed. So the elders are simply declaring what God says already about those who profess to know the Lord and who refuse to repent. What does God say about those who profess to know the Lord and refuse to repent of their sins? He says, they have no place in my kingdom. Heaven excludes such people, and the elders are to declare this. These actions are taken not to be mean, but to reclaim the sinful brother and to warn others. It is so important, the foundation of all this, it is so important to thrive in the Lord. If you don't realize that, you need to realize that. You need to realize how important it is to thrive in the Lord. For your own sake, And then, in order that you might care about whether other people are thriving in the Lord or not. That's what this passage is all about. We must never be indifferent about it, either in our own case or in the case of others. As I said earlier, I want to mention again that long before it reaches the point that someone is put out of the church, We need to be there to encourage and support one another in the Lord. That's one of the things that has pained me before on sessions is when there were tons of people that knew that someone was going astray and no one ever addressed it. And then it happens and the elders find out and we have to go and it's all over. we, We go to people, you are close to people that other people don't know as well, that they're not close to. So when you see someone not thriving, you go to them. You begin. Take another friend if they won't hear you. Bring it on to the elders before it gets too far. Seeing people that are so far down the road, so hardened. Let's deal with these things. Our Lord will love it when we do this. And He will help us. It's very hard to do it sometimes. (laughs) Very hard. But we do it for Him. First, we do it for the erring brother and we do it for the good of the whole church. Please stand and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. And it's so helpful to look at it in kind of a bigger overview way and to see how the part about Jesus saying that uh, about little children and about how they thrive because they're humble and receive the word. and Better not let them stumble because they're so impressionable, but rather lead them in your ways. And how much you want us to do that. And then how we need to make sure that we're not ourselves, that, that we ourselves are thriving so that we'll be a help to others and so that we won't perish. It's a huge thing. Cut off the 
cut off the hand, cut off the foot, pluck out the eye if it makes you stumble. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a, a passion like this and then that we would be willing to go to the one who is lost, to the sheep that has strayed, that we would go quickly. There's someone we know, someone we see, that we would address them, that we would not be indifferent to them, that we would not despise them, as Jesus said. He uses such strong words because it's such a strong matter, such an important matter. Father, give us that zeal for your house that Jesus had. I'm so glad that he had zeal for your house because if he hadn't, he never would have gone to the cross. And Father, as I said in the sermon, we, we, we come so far short of being like the shepherd that came to save us. We're here representing him in the world as his people. And we don't attain, we don't come close. But we pray, Lord, that we would grow and that we would grow up into this, that we wouldn't be indifferent about growing that we would become more and more filled with your spirit, that we may be able to, to thrive in your kingdom and to help other people thrive, that the church might thrive. Father, we live in a hard day. We live in a day of great slackness and disorder. We pray that you would help us, Lord, that we would be able to see a restoration of your church and your people. Lord, we really, we really, really need your forgiveness and we need your help. We need your mercy. So, Father, we are here presenting ourselves before you for mercy. Visit us, Lord. Come to us with your grace. Do what only you can do in us. Oh, Father, help us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ.